The world is not as, as it should be. So the question is, what is the problem? When you ask that question, you have to ask another question. What is a solution to the problem? Because the nature of the problem determines the nature of the solution. A wrong, a wrong diagnosis of the problem when it comes to our health or our vehicle or our computer, if we diagnose it wrongly, we won't fix what's wrong. When it comes to human behavior and all the tension and heartache and the conflict that exists in our world, domestic, social, among nations, there are a lot of theories out there as to what the problem is. Some say the problem is ignorance. People just don't know. Well, if the problem is ignorance, the solution is education. We need to provide people with information, with instruction about how to live. That leads to another question. What information do they need? Well, the problem is the environment. It's the uh, circumstances in which people live. It's their situation. So you need to change their circumstances in some way. Get them out of bad circumstances. Sometimes this is called social engineering. This is essentially what governments try to do and they throw millions and billions of dollars at problems trying to fix them and they don't fix them. Well, maybe the problem is a division, lack of harmony. We need to find a way to bring everybody together to be one. We need to eradicate distinctions of truth and falsehood, of right and wrong, of good and evil, even of male and female. Don't teach that there is one truth. That causes conflict. John Lennon years ago summarized this kind of thinking in a pagan anthem called Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and all the world will live as one. Sounds so simple. Let's all forget our differences and live as one. But even if you try that, you end up with a philosophy of some kind. No, you need to get to the root of the problem. And according to scripture, the root of the problem is sin. The reason for our differences and our conflicts and the wars and the heartache and all the suffering and death in the world is sin. In spite of the tolerance promoted and valued in our world, when you present that as being the problem and Jesus as being the solution to the problem, 
you end up with uh, hostile opposition that is passionately rejected. A few weeks ago, I began a study in the book, book of Galatians, and we saw in chapter 1, it's all about one gospel. There is one gospel. And if we proclaim a different gospel, we are anathema. We are destined for destruction by God. Today, rather than go into chapter 2 in Galatians, we will do that after Christmas, but I want to continue this one thing. There is one gospel. Logically, then, then there is one Savior, and there is one truth. The main point of distinction and intention between Christianity and all other belief systems are the two words, sin and Savior. Sin is a transgression of the law of God, the Bible says. So the assumption is that there is a God who is personal and holy and he has revealed his nature and his ways. He has spoken to us. He has given laws and commandments. And any violation of those commandments is sin. Now most would agree that there are a few bad apples in the world. There are some people who are truly, truly evil, but... Most people would say, I'm not one of those people. I'm excluded. I'm not one of the bad apples. Well, Scripture would disagree with you at that point. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 3, there is none righteous, there is none who does good, there is none who seeks for God. You're probably aware of the protests, the Occupy Wall Street protests going on, began in New York City, and have spread to over 400 cities around the world. People are camping out in parks and other places, denouncing corrupt big business, actually blaming all the evils of the world on capitalism. So these people shut obscenities, break laws, destroy property, attack police officers, get drunk, take drugs, engage in immorality, refuse to work. But they're not the problem. Capitalism is the problem, they say. And many of those who are participating in the protest take no responsibility for their personal behavior. They feel totally justified in resisting authority to the point of violence. And I've been sort of watching this because I'm a news junkie and, and uh, I've tried to listen to, okay, what's your answer? What's your solution? Usually it's something like extreme socialism. That seems to be where they're headed in terms of their answer. I'm thinking, well, there are countries you can move to if that's what you want. But they're not about to do that. No, the problem is out there. The problem's not in here. But really, according to God's word, I am the problem, and you're the problem, and the protesters are the problem. It's a, not so much the corruption of big business, although there is some of that, and the corruption of, in politics, although there is some of that. It's the corruption in my own heart. That is what I must deal with and answer with before God. Sin is a problem. Salvation 
to Christ is a solution. And we stand in a perilous situation if we reject that problem and that solution. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There are, the, there are disturbing trends within the evangelical church. It involves the downplaying of the sin of man and the wrath of God against sin. When you downplay either that, you downplay the value of the shed blood of Jesus. Only 17% of evangelicals think that sin is an offense against God. They see it primarily as doing harm to other people. It's commonly believed that no matter what we do, no matter how we live, God loves us anyway. So there's really nothing to be concerned about in the eternal scheme of things. Yeah, maybe clean up your act. Uh, don't make as many mistakes. Uh, mature. But sin, salvation, God's wrath, no, no, no. We don't, we don't go there. King David went there when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah in such a heinous manner. He said, against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Paul is emphatic, the wages of sin is death. Sin corrupts our nature and brings misery to ourselves and to other people. In addition to that, we are answerable to God and his wrath hangs over us until that wrath is taken care of by placing our trust in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is terrifying to fall into the hands of a living God. Jesus declared, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who's that? God. This biblical portrayal of God's holiness and wrath does not play well on Christian TV or on talk radio. But that is the God of the Bible. He's holy. He's just. Let me quickly add that he's also loving and merciful and gracious. But before we can experience the amazing grace of God that we've been singing about, be transformed by that grace, we have to confess our sinfulness. Unless there is repentance, there is no mercy. The nature of the problem determines the nature of the solution. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. Solution. And are justified, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. John 1.29, John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When people of other faiths or of no faith complain about the exclusive claims of Christianity, 
they are objecting to the most stupendous and glorious thing God has ever done. Sending his own son in the world to die for our sins, to bring salvation to us. Christians insist that Jesus, Bible-believing Christians insist that Jesus is the only Savior. And apart from him, we will perish because he is the sole provision of a gracious God to be reconciled to God. See, God dictates the terms of reconciliation. We don't. We may argue, God, you know what? You're really narrow. You're really narrow, God, about this whole business of heaven and salvation. Surely you can accept sincere people who think that they can come another way other than through Jesus Christ. Don't be so narrow, God. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, there is a big gate and a wide road that leads to destruction. There is a narrow gate and narrow way that leads to God and salvation. It's important for us, since we are rebels and we are guilty of offending God, to insist that we have the way to determine our approach to God. We will do it our way. And God will be broad-minded enough to accept our way. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. If we acknowledge that we are sinners, we have no complaint to God that he has provided only one Savior. When we are proud and skeptical about salvation, we are objecting to God's wisdom. We are objecting to his love. We are objecting to his verdict on sin. We don't want to wear the label. But we will never know the Savior if we don't accept the label of sinner. There is one gospel. There is one Savior. There is one truth. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Whether you're talking about a real building or life, when the foundations are destroyed, the rest comes tumbling down. And today the foundations are under attack. Virtually every Christian doctrine is under attack. Man's sinfulness under attack. God's holiness under attack. The deity of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the reality of God's wrath, heaven and hell are all under attack. And we say, why? Why is this taking place? Because there is a widespread rejection of the inspiration and authority and inerrancy of the Bible. Surveys have indicated that scarcely 50% of those who identify themselves as evangelical Christians believe that moral and spiritual absolutes exist. And these are people in evangelical churches. What is more alarming is that surveys among evangelical um, uh, students 
have indicated that only 9% believe in absolute truth. And the fallout of that is tragic. Many Christian youth and young adults are copying the world in their lifestyles. They're listening to the same music. They're attending the same movies. They are conducting their relationships in ways that are clearly contrary to biblical standards. In many evangelical churches, the preaching style is more for entertainment and motivation than the proclamation of truth. In some churches, the focus is on humor and not holiness, on telling stories, not doing exposition of scriptures. Os Guinness says the contemporary evangelicals are no longer people of truth. Now, this attack on truth is not something new or modern. It started way back in the Garden of Eden when God told Adam and Eve that you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of every other tree in the garden, hundreds of trees, but do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan says, does God really mean that? Has God really said that? In John 18, the passage that was read earlier. And the reason Pastor Dan put John 16, not 18, is because he couldn't read my writing. He couldn't read my writing. You should see his writing. I'm amazed that Shar can decipher either one of us, but she does. But she's been off for a while, so we're kind of plowing around in there. John 18, the interaction of Jesus and Pilate. Jesus says to Pilate, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into the world. To be king, yes, but to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. That's a staggering claim. Jesus was claiming the right of kingship, the right of sovereign lord over everything and everybody. Reminds me of the well-known statement by C.S. Lewis, who became a Christian in midlife in his 50s. He was an agnostic prior to that. He says, when it comes to Jesus, we have three options. He is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is lord. Jesus claims to be the source of truth, truth personified, the arbiter of truth, truth in the ultimate sense, truth that exceeds all other truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh, we're coming into the Christmas season, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth grace and truth. So anything that contradicts the teaching of Jesus or the work of Jesus is untrue. Back to John 18. When Jesus says that uh, I came to bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to me, Pilate asked that big question, what is truth? What is truth? Now, we can conjecture. What was his tone of voice? What was his attitude when he asked the question? 
disdain, cynicism, perhaps an air of breezy dismissal. Truth? Who knows and who cares? Maybe he's indignant. Truth? No one can know truth. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Oh, truth. I've longed for truth. I've searched for truth. I've wondered about truth. I've given up on this whole business of truth. Whatever it is, he didn't stick around for the answer. He turned around and went back out to the crowd. It was a rhetorical question, and Jesus could give him the answer and did give him the answer, but Pilate wasn't interested. Pilate was like many people in our own day. They have interest in some interest in truth. At least they investigate religions and spiritual options. But when confronted with the claims of Jesus Christ, they turn away in disgust and disdain and mockery. I believe that people hope there's no such thing as truth. For if there isn't, then they have no obligation to change or to investigate. They are not accountable because there's nothing out there, the big T truth that doesn't exist in their own mind. So there's a radical skepticism in our culture about the possibility of truth even existing. Truth in the minds of the vast majority is subjective, not objective. It is a small T truth, not a big T truth. It is my belief. That's my truth. The final authority then becomes self and not God. That's the spirit of our age, and that's the reason for despair and hopelessness that exists in our culture. And for the perverse behavior which is widespread. They have no guilt, they have no shame. To the modern mind, truth is like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder. And if I behold something as being true, to me it's true, but to you it might not be true. It's argued that those who claim to know the truth are on power trips. They have a personal and political agenda. They want to impose their values, their views. And that leads to tyranny and oppression. In fact, I have heard it said on television that evangelical Christians are like Islamic fundamentalists. We are terrorists. They are saying that all claims to truth are not only wrong, they're dangerous. And again, the primary reason why this outright rejection of truth is so popular is because people do not want to live under the authority of God and his truth. No God, no judgment, no truth, no standards. The fancy word for this is postmodernism. Postmodernism, the fancy term that means truth does not exist, it cannot be known. You create your own truth and you answer to yourself. That's the, that's the culture of our time. Postmodernism is an attack on the very foundations of truth. Postmodernism says we need to be tolerant of all points of view. Isn't that interesting? But the most intolerance is directed toward Bible-believing Christians. 
We have no tolerance for that. But you are to be tolerant of us. When we reject truth, we leave the whole area of ethics and morals up for grabs. Nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing is secure. Fidelity in marriage, ethics on the job, honesty on the resume, sanctity of life, respect for authority, they're all sacrificed on the altar of my rights, my opinion, and my way. Cannot we call anything evil? What about the sexual abuse of children? Isn't that evil? What about the battery of defenseless women? Isn't that evil? What about filing your income tax and recording all the facts? What about making a sale? Shouldn't integrity be involved there? You and I deal with moral and ethical issues every day of our lives. But what is guiding us in those decisions? Philip Ryken says, Christianity offers a consistent worldview that is able to distinguish good from evil because it can also discriminate between truth and falsehood. When the foundations are being destroyed as they are and have been in our culture, we should not be shaken. We're not left in confusion. We're not left scratching our head and trying to figure it all out. We do not wring our hands in despair. What is truth? What is truth? We continue to stand firm on the foundation of the Word of God. And when we encounter ethical and moral issues, as we do every day of our lives, there's only one thing that's important to us. Will I obey God or disobey him? Because he has spoken the truth. All truth begins with God. Second Chronicles 15, 3, the, the true God. John 17, 3, the only true God. Isaiah 65, 15, the God of truth. First Thessalonians 1, 9, the living and true God. Revelation 6, verse 10, Sovereign Lord, holy and true. And all of God's ways are right. Even those ways that pain us and trouble us and bring difficulty to us. Revelation 15, 3, God's ways are just and true. Revelation 16, 7, true and just are his judgments. Psalm 119, 151, all his commandments are true. You and I often distort truth. We do it deliberately sometimes to protect ourselves or accidentally. Because our knowledge is limited and our viewpoint is tainted with ignorance and with sin and selfishness. We have a point of view. God's view is comprehensive and complete. We only see part of reality. He sees all reality. God is truth. He knows the truth. He speaks the truth. He defines the truth. He reveals the truth. 2 Samuel 7, 28, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. 
So we believe the Bible to be the inspired and fallible word of God. And so with all of the voices screaming at us from the world about behavior and ethics and morals and conduct, we go back to the book. We go back to the source of truth, which is God and the scriptures. The gospel makes a claim on us. It rules our lives. And if you and I love the Lord, we love his truth. And if we love his truth, we'll want to know what it says, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll want to do what it says. Any serious follower of Jesus Christ will be a student of the Bible. One author says, the gospel is information that brings transformation. So the truth is to be known, but the truth is to be lived. For you and I to insist that we know the Lord and we love his truth, but we do not obey him is to be deceived. Even worse, it is to be a hypocrite. And the world can spot a hypocrite, especially one who wears the label of Christian a mile away. The truth can only be known, understood, and obeyed through the power of the Holy Spirit. In our own strength, we have no capacity to understand truth or obey truth. Knowing the difference between what is true and what is false depends upon listening to Jesus. Back to John 18, 38. For this purpose I was born, that is to be a king. And for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If you're of the truth, you listen to the voice of Jesus. That's not some mystical sound coming from the heavens. It is the word of God. So here's the question we need to ponder. Have you trusted in Jesus as Savior? Are you submitting to him as king and are you following him as Lord? Are you listening to his voice each and every day? There is one gospel and it is great news. It's the most fantastic news in all the world. One gospel. There is one Savior who can redeem you from your sins. His name is Jesus. And there is one truth that will set you free and give you clear guidance in your life. One gospel, one Savior, one truth. Let us pray. Lord God, the noise of the world is everywhere. The voices of our culture are screaming at us. And what they're saying is bad news. If we listen to those voices, we're in trouble. We'll be drawn away into ways of thinking and living which will destroy us and bring us under your judgment. But, oh God, thanks for speaking clearly. Thank you that grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. 
And if we do not know him, I trust that even now where we sit, we will say, Lord, Jesus, be my Savior. Come into my life. Forgive all my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. And then guide me. And all of us are facing choices. Every day we face choices. Ethics and morals and other choices. Lord, may we seek the truth and the right way and the way of righteousness through the study of the Word of God. But not just the study. It's by the power of the Spirit putting that into practice in life. One gospel, one Savior, one truth. Thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.